I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Today, I want to bring on two smart people who've spent a lot of time studying relationships how we make them, what we look for in other people, and the rules, right or wrong, that come with making those big decisions. Later in the episode, we'll take a deep dive into one very specific rule we've all heard, which is that opposites attract. Is that actually true, though? Are we drawn to people who are different from us, or do we just seek out our own kind? But first, I want to introduce you to Lamont White. Hi, Lamont. Hi, Meredith. Lamont is a dating coach and matchmaker. He works mostly with gay men, but he has clients of all stripes. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I actually live in Atlanta, Georgia, with my husband and our two nephews. I'm a therapist by trade. I have an undergrad in psychology and a master's in professional counseling. So I've been a therapist for a long time, particularly with gay couples. And so I I got to see, like, the good and the bad in relationships. I want to talk about rules. This season is is all about rules and breaking the rules. And we talk about, you know, people talk about rules that they've been told, like cheaters always cheat or mm-hmm, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and can you tell me what you think about absolute rules about love and relationships and dating when you hear them? Do you think there are any that are actually across the board fair to live by? Or is this all a bunch of like stuff somebody could cross stitch on a doily or whatever that that really it's just like life should be more nuanced than that? Like, are there rules? Right, right. So Meredith, when I hear the word rules, it makes me cringe, right? (laughs) Like, oh, no. So when it comes to dating, I say, listen, make them up as you go. Okay, you you get to figure out what works well for you and your partner. If it's, you know, no sex in the first date, have at it. If you want to have sex in the first date, have at it. Do what works well for you. What if somebody is not having luck finding love Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. start to believe that it is because they are having sex in a first date or because they are breaking some you know, rule they've been told or rule that they've read about, would you say change your behavior? Or would you say you just haven't found the right person that 
Well, I, I think most folks are dating the wrong way. So they need to work with a dating coach or a therapist to make sure that they're putting themselves out there in the right way. So that's one. Sometimes people are doing things the wrong way by um, not having really good pictures on their dating profiles. They go on dates and they're really, really nervous. So they drink a whole bunch <laughs> and then they make a fool out of themselves. So it's about presenting yourself in the right manner. Dating is like a marathon, right? You are going to be at this, at this, at this for a long time. And it is okay to go on multiple dates and it doesn't work out, right? You don't want to be for everybody. You want to find your somebody. And that means that you might have to go on 10 horrible dates. It's interesting because it sounds like on the one hand, you're like, okay, no, everybody's got a different a different version of their best selves, right, for, for mm-hmm. dating. But on the other hand, people come to you for help, and I'm sure in that matchmaking, there's there's coaching, right, about what to do. Yes. And, and you probably do have some ideas for some good, I hate to use the word rule, but rules to live by, things to think about, maybe mm-hmm. better, one of which sounds like don't get wasted on a first date. But what are some things you tell people who are looking for love about some things? We won't call them rules. We'll call them mm-hmm. things to consider. Guidance. We'll say you know, guidance. 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 Tips. Tips. Yeah. So I say definitely in your tool belt, you have to talk about who you are, right? So I tell my clients, you need to come up with at least three elevator speeches that talks about, you know, things that interest you, things that make you smile. Like if you're going to talk about something on a date, you need to be smiling. Also, I tell guys, it is okay to flirt. It is okay to touch on a first date. You want to stay out of the friend zone. A lot of guys go on dates and they treat it like it's a job interview or they're hanging out with a colleague. No, give the guy a compliment. You can touch his back. You can give him a hug. You can tell him he smells great. Those are going to be things that will make the guy say, you know what? He's into me and I'm doing something right. It can be very confusing to know what guidance Mm -hmm. and what rules are okay in any given moment. When you are talking to someone who is sort of seeking someone to tell them how things work, how would you tell them to navigate all of these mixed messages? Yeah, the messages can be very confusing. The advice that I give, it's not my opinion. It is researched and they're proven strategies that, particularly for gay men, if you do it, it will work. So some of those things, like I tell guys, if there's a rule, don't talk about your ex on a first date, right? Why are you bringing your ex up? on the, No, your, your, your ex does not get to occupy that space in time when you're meeting somebody new, right? Also, I might say, don't talk about anything that's negative or controversial. And if, if, if it's going to make you frown, it's going to make you cry, wait until later to talk about that, right? No, cr- no crying is for your entire second date. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone, oh Lord, I'm so happy I'm not in the dating field. But I did go on a date with this guy and he did cry on the first date. And I was just like, Lord, today, what did I do? Like, he was just having a bad week and he was crying. I'm over here getting him tissue. No, don't cry on your first date. That That's the way to hor- end it. Like, no, no, no. I want to bounce some rules off of you or sayings off of you. And I want you to tell me what you think of them. Mm-hmm. Cheaters always cheat. No, 
I think people are not honest about monogamy, okay? I think people just need to have more transparent conversations about the type of sex that they like and how frequently. So I think people are uncomfortable with being honest to say, hey, you know what? I want to have multiple partners, sex partners. You create the space for them to be comfortable to share that with you. Okay, so if somebody cheated on one person, it doesn't mean they'll cheat on you. Right, people cheat for a number of reasons. Okay, what about you have to learn how to be by yourself before you can be with someone else? You have to enjoy who you are, right? There, there are sometimes people look for a relationship to bring meaning to, meaning to their life. I have a friend, every new guy, he changes his career based on the new guy because he doesn't have his own identity. You have to show up for yourself, then get in a relationship. So yes, love yourself first. The person somebody dates after a long relationship will definitely be a rebound. Rebounds are okay. Sometimes they work, but sometimes they're just to help you get over (laughs) that ex. So I'm an advocate for rebounds. But like if if somebody's dating somebody and they're the first person, the other person is dated after their relationship, does it mean they're temporary? No, no. I've seen some guys who fresh divorce months later, still with a guy. So yeah, I don't think there are any absolutes. Okay. Um, here's a gendered one. Men move on faster than women. No, they don't. They don't. The, the science is, is contrary to that. Okay. <laughs> Men do get over arguments quicker than women. We're a little bit more logical. We deal with it and we move on. Okay. But when and it comes out to love, no. And like women are like eight years later, like, I remember that thing you said. I'm not over it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. What about your partner should be like your best friend? No, no. I have a best friend. His name is Rashawn. I told my <laughs> husband that <laughs> this is my best friend. Okay. There is a space that he occupies in my heart that my husband cannot touch. Okay. And it's okay. <laughs> Perfect. That's a Uh, lot for a person to live up to, right? He has to be your best friend. He has to satisfy you sexually. He has to pay the big, like, it's a lot. No. Mm -mm. What about never go to bed angry? No, I go to bed angry. (laughs) Sometimes you need time to process things, right? And sometimes it's better, particularly the couples that I counsel, Um, Sometimes you need a day, 20 minutes to process it. So your response is not something you're going to regret, right? There are some things I want to respond to in the moment, but I'm like, nope, mm -mm. I'm going to go walk around the block. I'll be back. Go to bed angry. A huge question I get in the column is about the timing of I love you, saying it for the first time. And some mm-hmm. people throw it out pretty quickly. Other people take take other people never say it. Right. And mm-hmm. I think about past relationships and I'm somebody who said it a few times after the relationship was over, as in mm-hmm. I loved you. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. like, you did it's too, but, late. Like, too late, too late, too late. But like, what do you um you know, there are some people who'd say if it's six months and that hasn't been said, like, what are you doing? Like, so what do you say to that? So I think it is okay to tell the person that you love them very early on. People you do. Want, yes, people want security in their relationship. They want to know that you are here for me and that you are interested. So I think if you wait months and months and months before you... It, it, only do it if it's if it's your true feeling. But I feel like you need to say that early on. But if you... Uh, saying it at 
three months means something very different, right, than saying it at three years, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. If, if you, listen, if you take three years to tell me you love me, I'll probably laugh before then. I think it is okay at, you know, six months, eight months. It's okay to use the L word. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One thing I think about is some things that I would have said a few years ago, just to friends, right, in that capacity of, like, the rules seem to have changed in terms of technology. Like this idea that, you know, at 44, listen, if somebody calls me, I I spent many years making phone calls. And there are people who are even just a few years younger than me where if they get a phone call, they immediately think it's an emergency um, or spam, right? Like the way in which we communicate. I used, 10 years ago, I would have said it's like rude to text somebody asking them out. Now that might, calling someone to ask them out seems kind of, overly formal in some ways sometimes i don't know Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that piece Mm -hmm. of it may have evolved i think texting is a horrible way of communicating when you're dating someone i think it's okay to call the person and say hey i had a great time on a date i I just want to hear your voice i want to see you again you want to start communicating early on the phone uh, or video chat, right? You can send video messages. There are different apps where you can be like, hey, I guess I want to say hi. Then the person can answer the video whatever they want to. I don't think folks should have difficult conversations via text, right? Or trying to find more about the person via text either, right? So no, I think pick the phone up. Pick the phone up. This is so great because I just feel like rules are, as we said, even just the word is such a trap, right? And thank you for shedding light on the fact that a lot of them are bullshit. It's very helpful. Yes. (laughs) Except for the ones that aren't. (laughs) Um, So thank you, Lamont, so much for sharing your story and, and giving us some suggestions. You as are opposed more to than welcome. rules we have to follow. More guidance. Guidance, yes. yes. Okay. When we come back, do opposites really attract? Or is that just a myth? That's after a short break. Okay, we're back. So we got Lamont White's take on a bunch of rules. Now I want to really zero in on one particular relationship trope. Opposites attract. Years ago, I became obsessed with the idea that opposites attract could be a biological rule. I didn't necessarily believe it could be, but there was a 1995 study by a Swiss biologist that seemed to prove it. Here's how the study went down. This scientist gave sweaty, smelly t-shirts worn by a bunch of men to a bunch of women. The women were asked which of the smelly t-shirts smelled best to them without ever seeing the men. The answer overwhelmingly was the t-shirt worn by the man whose immune system was most different from her own. Why, you might ask. Well, the research suggested that we're programmed to want to make the healthiest babies. Thus, pheromonally, we're drawn to those with whom we might diversify the gene pool. But come on, is that really how we pick a partner? That's just one take, and there are a whole lot of other studies looking at why we choose the partners we do. But let's leave biology out of it for a minute. Let's talk about the psychology behind seeking out potential mates. 
are two very different people, say, from different socioeconomic backgrounds or religions, actually predisposed to like each other? And how do they do once they're in a relationship? To answer this question, I called another kind of expert. My name is Angela Baines. I'm an associate professor of psychology at Wellesley College. I study relationships and most commonly friendships. I'm interested in the factors that influence people's friendship choices. So I sort of started with a focus on the role of similarity in dictating who we choose as friends and sort of documented how amazingly common and widespread the lure of similarity is in friendship. Angela's research suggests that opposites don't attract at all. In a big study she worked on, published in 2016, she concluded that people in close relationships bond because they have similar values and shared experiences. We like it when someone is a lot like us. So I know that you did not, in these studies, you have not focused on romantic relationships, but is it fair to say that the way we might choose a romantic partner might resemble how we choose the friends we surround ourselves with? Yes. Very much so. In fact, the methods that we use for this research are pretty much um, agnostic about relationship type in that we use a, we call it a a field method, um, which means that we go out into public settings. We find people in pairs of two who are together as our measurement of, you know, they know each other, so they have a relationship of some sort. And so the widespread evidence we find for similarity spans relationship type. Angela says like finds like pretty quickly in all sorts of ways. I've also done a little bit of work on nonverbal cues to similarity in first impression situations. And people are remarkably good at sizing up someone and gravitating to people who are similar to them, even though they haven't talked about anything substantive yet. So like in the first two minutes of a conversation with a new acquaintance, We measured the similarity of the pairs that formed in that situation. And it was greater than chance, which I just think is amazing. What were some of those nonverbal cues? Well, so (laughs) that's a great question and everyone wants to know. And we're not entirely certain, but we did it in an... Angela explains that they actually had subjects wear garbage bags over their clothes to obscure some of the visual cues people might otherwise use. So we literally had them punch a hole in it for their head and their arms. And then they. this was done at, at the University of Kansas, actually, when I was in graduate school. And so it was a large lecture hall class with like 500 people. So we had them wander around and try and, you know, find someone that they hadn't met and have this conversation. And the pairs with bags on were less similar across all the dimensions we measured compared to the pairs without bags. So while we don't know precisely which cues they're using, when we interrupt that by hiding information in the center of the body, it it seems to throw off those social perception processes of making those snap judgments. So the visual cues that were ignored in that sense that no longer existed would be what somebody's wearing or... but, But I do wonder, okay, like what if you put all those people in the garbage bags in a bar and gave them alcohol? feel like my non-visual cues would be like, who like me goes to the snack table as opposed to mingling? Who like me is maybe feeling a little bit 
on the sides of the social interaction or looks like they might be ready to go home at 11. Like there are these other things about behavior in a group setting that might draw me to somebody even in a garbage bag, I guess. So were they just sort of wandering around? Like, what did it look like? Yeah, I mean, it was a large lecture hall and they were instructed to try and go to a different quadrant of the room to sort of mix them up so that you don't have all of the go-getters who sit in the front talking to each other and the, you know, the people who straggle in sitting in the back. And so we tried to shuffle them around and said, find someone, have a two-minute conversation. We assigned them a mundane conversation topic, like, is Pluto a planet or what's your favorite vegetable? So that we were pretty sure they weren't asking each other about politics or, you know, social attitudes that might matter to them. And after the interaction, they rated how interested they were in becoming friends with the person and if they wanted to talk to them again. And there was a relationship between the pairs that formed on that activity that were more similar, reported higher levels of attraction and interest. Sometimes I think about what opposite used to mean to me. Like someone who runs marathons might be the opposite of me. But that definition has changed because of the world and how my values have changed. Now, when people say opposite, they might mean politics. In fact, they probably do. I want to talk about, when you talk about similarities, some of the shifting priorities in the world, right? Like, I don't know that pre-2015 that politics might have been the barrier. You know, I'm thinking about all the letters I got after 2016 from people who had been happily married for years. And they were like, now I can't live with it because I know this person feels differently than I do about what just happened in this election. And they would say, "Is, is there any hope? And I was like, well, were you really happily married literally six weeks ago or a year ago? It's just so interesting that such a fundamental difference had been present the whole time, but maybe had become more pronounced or, you know, under a spotlight just because of what was happening on the news or what was happening in the world that these things can shift um, and they're not as, as static as I would have believed. One of the things that we tried to measure in our research is the importance of the dimension. And so we did it with attitudes and values. And so we asked people, you know, like, you know, how much does money matter to you? Or, you know, what's the value of religion in your life? And how important is that to you? And people were more similar to their friends on the dimensions they rated as important. So I I can definitely see an argument for in this current polarized political climate that matching on politics has come up to the forefront in terms of it being an important criterion in our expectations about whether or not um, we'll get along with someone. I want to talk about something that might be a little bit out of your area of research, but would love your opinions um, about the idea of type. So I think a lot of us feel like, oh, I have a type. And, And that could extend to friendship, but often relates to romantic partnership. And I have a friend who once said to me, you know, sometimes when somebody feels like, good to you when something feels right sometimes it's just familiar and that maybe the way in which we think we have a type is just reminding us of the last thing we did and the thing we did before that and the thing we did before that so you know for those who say well oh this person's not my type I can't entertain this as a romantic possibility what might you say to them 
I wouldn't try and discount it. I think that people are probably right. And, and your observation about familiarity is very astute. You know, the, the attraction literature, the, the major predictors of attraction all point back to familiarity, similarity, proximity, and symmetry in physical attractiveness all have to do with, you know, nothing being seemingly foreign or unfamiliar or unpredictable. I think about this, our need for familiar, and I can't decide if it's a good thing. Sometimes I think it can be limiting. It reminds me of this book from a few years ago called Date-onomics by John Berger. He makes this case that straight women might have trouble finding men online because they're limiting their options to college-educated partners. He says that women are far more likely to get advanced degrees these days, and that if they pass over men who don't match them in that value or experience, they're closing off so many possibilities. I don't know if I agree that that is why some straight women have trouble finding worthy men to date, but it is one theory. concept was interesting to me, especially when you consider app dating, right, where you are presented with many people you might not meet in the real world. So I I guess I wonder when you this this drive for finding someone similar, I guess I wonder how it might limit you and emotionally limit your options for both friendship and dating. Uh, Like, you know, what did you find as the implications of this need for similarity? We found that it's it's so common and widespread, which suggests that it's it's sort of a psychological default. At least that's how I think of it, is that you have to have some intentionality about going outside of your comfort zone. And by that, I just mean people who are, who are like you. We do have evidence that relationships, at least in, in friendships, that are characterized by lower levels of similarity are not necessarily any less satisfying that those friendship pairs report similar levels of closeness um, and satisfaction with the friendship. That is a really important point I want to make clear. Angela is saying if we do find ourselves with someone not quite like us in every way, it doesn't mean we'll be any less happy. If you want to be intentional about finding someone outside your comfort zone, if you want to open the doors to someone who might be different in wonderful ways— Maybe meet people who share one of your interests, like a band, an author, a chef, whatever, and then figure out the rest from there. Some of the ways in which I've made friends who are not like me tend to be through a fandom of something that appeals to a broad audience. And I was just thinking about my love of romance novels and the number of, I mean, they're women, but I've connected with a lot of women like romance novels, right? And women of all kinds and of all different romance novels and and even of TV shows and the way in which I engage socially on social media or in real life with people. Like that's the one area where a lot of different kinds of people show up with this incredibly intense similarity about one thing, but then it can grow from there. That just seems like one exception of like a way to sort of get out of that trap? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that affinity groups like that is, is a, a, a great opportunity to meet people that you might not otherwise come into contact with in your daily routine. 
humans are complicated. So if you can connect on one thing that you do have in common, then you might be able to learn from and be more open to the differences that they might have in other dimensions. So it's, it's definitely not all or none and that we're not 100% similar or 100% different from anyone. Where do you think this idea came from that opposites attract? Is it just like movies and songs and a Paula Abdul song that I like? Let me pause for the young people right here and note that the Paula Abdul song is literally called Opposites Attract. Please watch the music video. It includes an animated cat. about psychology, you know, that there's the appeal of folk wisdom, and you can find an anecdote that validates your cliche. And for just about everyone, there's an opposing one. So you can either, you know, point to opposites attract, if that's really what you're convinced of, um, or you can say birds of a feather flock together, and probably find some anecdotal evidence to support it. And so that's where psychological science comes in and being helpful in, in sorting through the, the contradiction <laughs> that we have in our personal anecdotes. And there's much stronger evidence for birds of a feather or you know similarity attraction than there is for opposites attract. Angela, thank you so much for, for sharing with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can always send us a letter. We are an advice column, too to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. I want to talk about straight people for a second. <laughs> hey, straight folks. <laughs> the, the poor, poor, I, I just, every time I see like a tweet that's like, are straight people okay? I'm like, no, we're not okay. <laughs> right. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.